Well, I was in uh, just earlier today, Brandon. I was in not only Luxembourg, but Luxembourg City. Or only because I watched The Patriot a lot and I heard people actually say it as they say Luxembourg. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, you know, Luxembourg, to go back to the American is, uh, way of saying it, it's just, it's, it's, uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, it's this kind of unexpected country, right? Like, you know, you've heard about it and you go there. And first of all, you know, one should know this. But I think as an American, until you know it, you don't re- it doesn't really like up in your head is they speak French there, right? Oh, like, okay. If you yeah. sort of like, like exactly, right? Now, if you even look now, listen, as everyone knows, I'm just revealing my naivete to use, I think, a French word and everything. But if you look at the Luxembourg flag and you were to look at the Netherlands flag, you would kind of be like, I think maybe you need more toner in your printer for one of these <laughs> flags. Like they're very similar and almost the same. Right. And so like, <laughs> however, you go there and like, you know, I took I took a uh, uh, I would say by American standards, a fair amount of French in high school. Right. So like as I joked with several people, like I think very stupidly on my part, my French is probably better than my Dutch, like even though I very rarely ever speak French. So it is kind of like it's fun to go to a French speaking country and hear French because I can kind of understand what people are talking about, like. Like the uh, uh, people were asking us what we wanted for lunch. And then they were like, oh, we'll come over to you and like tell you it in English. But I was like, no, no, I got it. Like we got we got some uh, we got some beef and we're going to have like a salmon salad. And then for dessert, we got this. So it's kind of nice to have like, oh, I kind of get what's going on here. Now, of course, like it's I, I, I have no confidence in my ability to pronounce French. So I can't even like I don't I try not to even say like, you know, thank you. And, and I guess I can say bonjour and things like that. But, you know, the real the real pivot point to your confidence, as I think I mentioned before, in speaking French in Europe is if you say we oui or we or what, however they pronounce it, right? There's some like, I think that's kind of a tell of like how native you are in your French speaking is how you say yes. Because in America, you're taught to say we, oui, right? But like, I have never heard any French speaking person say it that way. They always say like, and I'm going to butcher it, but they're always like, we. Oui. Now, what? is that an I mean, accent or is it actually a different pronou- pronunciation? That's well, this like is a, my whole – That's, a, my that's whole the part I don't understand sometimes. So that's the, really hard when you're studying languages in the United States. It's like sometimes they're just telling you your accent is wrong, which totally, is like, totally. yeah, yeah, it is wrong, but it's real hard to change that. But then sometimes it's like, no, they're just teaching you like to your point, right, like, right, right. a completely wrong pronunciation. And you're like, and, well, and, thanks and, a lot. And, that was not helpful. And, the, right? and this is my point, Brandon. I have no idea. I don't know mm-hmm. like – like now, on the other hand, like it does make me think if I was really going to like study French, I would want a Cajun person to teach me because wouldn't that be the best <laughs> that if, if 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 like you were fluent in French, but you had like a Louisiana Cajun oh accent, that would be amazing. <laughs> right. Anyways, uh, or no even a mo- understand you on either continent. It's like, what are yeah. you saying? What, what are you talking about? Or or, or even as we would say, a, a Quebec accent, or oh, Quebecois. Geez. Like that yeah. would also be fun. But whatever. <laughs> so so that's not what what I wanted to talk about. So I was in I was in Luxembourg City, right? And uh, and I there is there are no Marriotts in uh, in Luxembourg, uh, as far as I can tell. So I had to say not had to. I got to stay in a um, uh, oh what's the name of the hotel chain? Not, not, not Allure. It's uh, the, the big fr- Accor. I stayed in an Accor one, which is my secondary choice for hotel chains. And I stayed in a Novotel. Now, what I learned, I think, is that the Novotel is the courtyard suites of the Accor hotels. You want to stay okay. in the Sofatel. Okay. It gets yeah. very complicated. But, yep. um, but the part of Luxembourg City that I was in 
there's a lot of new construction. It's right next to a, uh, a big convention center, a lot of new office buildings. And I was in a Novotel. Now, a Novotel inside, if you can imagine a, at least the one that I was in, if you imagine a, um, what is, what is the, the Marriott, um, there's no more motels, but the motel version of the W, a loft. A loft, it's yeah. kind of like mm-hmm. It's kind of like an aloft, but not hipstery, right? So okay. it has like the very flat carpet. It looks nice and fresh, but the functional room, there's no in-room coffee. Very oh. important to remember, oh. right? Uh-huh. But anyways, so I, I, was, I was looking at the, the hotel style, the buildings around me, and it's a very, I don't really know what I have to say about this, but there is some design aesthetic that is sort of like, continental business European, not luxury. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this, right? So like you go to Europe, right? And you're not in like, you're not in like the old part of Europe that wasn't completely destroyed in World War II, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that, so like, you know, you, like if, you're, if you're in the inner rings of, uh, of Amsterdam, right? The canals, which is still preserved, like clearly that is its own thing, like old style stuff, right? Or if you go to London, Right. Like you're in mm-hmm. London. It has its own like distinct, like gritty London style. Right. But there are some parts of Europe that you go to often in the, the suburbs of the city that are like this brand new, very like sharp, uh, like um, clean and crisp sort of construction. Mm-hmm. And like I feel like maybe in the States you encounter that only in like maybe an Aloft hotel like the the. Yeah, the cleanest, I mean, like more modern, kind of straight edges, yeah, yeah. polished, curves, and, 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 yeah, huh? And then, the, and then the the buildings around you are, you know, I think, I don't know, you would have more thoughts on this than I do, but like, I think in Austin, the you have all these new buildings that are like, they're not even this extreme, but they're kind of like glass and crisp. But there's another style of building that you encounter a lot that looks like you remember, like the uh, like the cheese grater Mac. Like mm-hmm. the Macs that are kind of like yeah. metal with holes cut in them. It's almost like buildings like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's almost like uh, Apple design style from like eight to ten years ago. And I feel like this is, to me, this is a very distinct, it's almost like, let's call it 20, like, like early 21st century European business style. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I don't know how to describe it, but I see it frequently. Like, and, and I don't know, I mean, have you encountered this, Brandon? Do, do you have this sense of it? Um, I think I know what you're talking about a little bit. I just think, you know, maybe the way to think of it is, in this case, look through an American lens, like, often styles that seem like more, kind of like you're describing there, like, uh, I think Americans, we would just lump it all together and be like, oh, that's European, right? Not realizing that, mm. well, all of Europe, yes. there's lots of different countries and like everything kind of has its own style. And, you know, as we all know, Barcelona is very different than London and so and so on and so forth. So... Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, I think you're right, but there is, if you will, where it's like, maybe like craftsman is like more distinctly American, right. You know, sort of mm. then, um, you know, just as a broad generalization. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's like in Europe, you just kind of see like this, the more finished, refined, smaller, just more smoothness everywhere. So yeah, no, I definitely see that. And I think that then if you do apply that broadly, it's kind of what you're describing in office buildings, right? It's like, they, like there is kind of like, for, at least from an right. American point of view, there is a very like, oh, that's a European looking office building. Like when you're watching uh, like Jason Bourne and he's running around Europe, you're like, oh yeah, that's a European office building. Exactly. That's exactly. different v- than uh, the stuff v- we have v- in the US. 
Very crisp. I think you know, you know, you're 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 evoking in my mind. Uh, so, whenever there is a spy movie that involves uh, you know British spy stuff, MI five or six or what, whatever, I don't, I don't know the distinction between the two, but like whenever you have British spies, you can tell in movies there is a very early on stylistic choice they have to make. They're like, do we go? with that the whole spy community is in these old like victorian georgian mm-hmm. sort of like buildings where it's old and and uh and um gentrified's not the right word but like it's just very like you know sherlock holmesy or whatever or do we go to the other extreme where it's all like crisp and glass and right. modernistic right and like whereas like i feel like there's a middle road where like sometimes in like I think in in American spy movies, the style is like, wow, they really had no budget for the office furniture. <laughs> like, no, no matter how important the role they have is, it's just like crap, right? right. Like the, which, which I think probably matches the, the American uh, spy agency aesthetic. Whereas, like, you know, what I encounter is that, like, you know, I'm thinking the later John, James Bond movies where, like, you know, it's very, like, well-kept and, well-kept and put together and there's lots of glass around them. Everything's super clean and, and crisp. Versus, like, you know, going to visit, uh, what is the guy? Not M, the other one. Who's the guy with the, the inventions? Your John Cleese guy? Uh, a Q. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Whereas you go down to his cave, and it's just all dirty, and it's just sort of like, oh, sorry, that's actually just my tea. That's not an explosive. <laughs> uh, like, but, yeah, it, uh, you know, I need, maybe the listeners can help out and find out what this, uh, what this design style is uh, that, that, that I keep encountering. Software Defined Talk is brought to you by Teleport. Every hack follows the same problem. First... Hackers exploit a human error, like a leak key or a secret left in code. They gain a foothold and then pivot, moving from one compromised system to the next. Sound familiar? Teleport breaks this cycle. Open source Teleport gives every engineer, every piece of hardware, every application an identity. Replacing secrets like password and keys with auto-expiring identity-based certificates, the Teleport platform reduces the opportunity for human error, increasing productivity and revolutionizing security and compliance. Learn why the most valuable visionary businesses in the world choose Teleport at goteleport.com. And of course, we thank Teleport for sponsoring our show. Well, you know, I actually uh, became friends with someone recently who works at Cerner. So I had the chance to talk with them a lot, uh, which, which is fun. It, it was a nice person. I, I don't want to uh, name them, but if they're listening, they know who they are. Uh, and I saw, I think, I think uh, Oracle has been buying Cerner, and I think that's been that's closed. It's a done deal. Yep, it's as, all as done. I twenty, I think, twenty eight billion, pretty big uh, purchase there. And I should also mention Cerner, uh, longtime pivotal, now now VMware Tanzu customer. You know, they they uh, I believe they use the uh, the Tanzu application service. They're they're happy with it, so that's great. Um, however, as as always, when it comes to acquisitions, I wanted to like go over like I think. Reading about acquisitions is always a fun, instructive thing to look at because, you know, I've worked in it and we all we all care about it. Um, so first of all, I, you know, there was some commentary about Cerner stuff uh, that they're the the um, I guess he's the CTO that, that Larry, uh, as it were, had. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting to think about in hopefully like a non cynical way, like how how acquiring people think about the way that the, the, the things they are acquiring. So Cerner is just in a hand wavy way, like a medical records company, right? So like, I don't actually know how this works in other markets, but in the US, uh, since healthcare is a very fragmented, uh, non-centralized thing, 
I don't know. I mean, you probably still only have like maybe three or four medical records vendors. Like you've got, um, yeah, if that, I think. Yeah, is it even... is it Epicor? Like who's the other one? You've got Cerner, and I think, then I think it's... people would say Epic, but like I have to look up the official name. But I know you're talking about. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And so you like like it's always funny when we think we have an open system, and then you're like, hmm. But there's really only two answers to your open question. So how <laughs> open is that? Uh, but like like so you know it's just what you enter all your stuff into. And uh, so, one, I think the other reason this is interesting is it gets to the quandary that we often have on this, or that at least I often have in our, our coverage of the Oracle cloud, which is like, I feel like when Oracle talks about cloud, what they more mean is like SaaS, right? Because they have a huge amount of legit SaaS applications. Now, I know they have some like, actual infrastructure stuff but it's always a little confusing about like are they talking about their SaaS stuff or like aws stuff like like what right what does it mean to be and they bought a lot of business applications which have become sassified if they weren't sassified totally point, right totally. that's really and, what people think of today right right and I, and I think that's the other thing for for people who are in the infrastructure space is like it's easy to think about oracle as oracle database and programming stuff whereas like i don't have the numbers in front of me but i feel like maybe at least half of Oracle's revenue is just from like ERP stuff, right? So it's a completely different like beast of a company than maybe we toss about in our. I know the IaaS magic quadrant has been retired for some inexplicable reason, but like <laughs> it was too uh, useful. We liked it too much. <laughs> they had to get rid of it. They're like, this is too useful. Get rid of it. But but so anyways, when you look at the Cerner acquisition, right? So you have a uh, you have a type of enterprise application uh, in a gigantic. Uh, industry, right? If only in North America. I don't know how, how they represent themselves abroad. Um, but it's sort of like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Of course, Oracle would want to own that, right? Because they own the, these applications. Uh, and so it makes sense. I, I don't know, you know, uh, as I keep saying, I don't know enough to know if like, it, like, was this a good deal? Or like, what, like, how did the numbers all work out? Like, when, when did you go to the head eye banker and like, get them out of the hot tub? And by um, yeah, I mean how to get to twenty eight billion, right? That's, that's I, I, I don't, magic I don't, question. I don't know what gender the eye baker identified with. Doesn't matter, but they were definitely in the hot tub chilling, and someone was like, "Go, go, 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 right? get like, that done." Yeah, and so, but do you think that I feel like the deal was that this? I mean, talk about moats, right? You know, things that mm-hmm. are highly differentiated, like you know, just the fact that we can kind of name all the ones. It's like because I think if you've been in in IT, like you eventually you know, encounter these systems because you have to integrate or do something with it. It's like Cerner or Epic. And you're like, okay, well, how hard could that be? Turns out incredibly hard. Anytime you want to integrate, do something with them, um, just anything, right? And it's like, so the fact, and then of course, there's always this belief that like, oh, some startup is going to like disrupt the healthcare records industry and that never happens. And, and, and it's like, once somebody actually gets into it, they're like, wow, this is really complicated. So, so I don't know, you know, I don't know what the run rate is. I don't know what kind of free cash flow Cerner throws off, but like, I feel like it's going to be throwing off free cash flow for a long, long time. No hospital yeah, is throwing yeah. out Cerner. Now, now that is a good point. I didn't really even consider is that it is a big moat ar- around that industry right now. So like, I don't, seems like a good acquisition there's probably like like uh some some good uh synergies in effect there that would Mm -hmm. work out however what i found i don't again i don't have it in front of me but what i found well it it seemed a little weird but i think it was also a good m a sociology study is that um 
there was a lot of talk from from Larry Ellison about how now that they had Cerner, they were going to optimize all these things about medical records <laughs> that they have. They have all this health information, right? And that doctors spend all their time doing this, that, and the other. And because now that they have this information, they're really going to go in there and like optimize the the way that things are operating. And I feel like I'm trying not to be too like cynical about it, but like I I don't think that's possible, right? Like it it seems like it's one of these things where like if that was possible, it would have already happened. And I don't know what like synergies. Right. would exist that Oracle could impose that would like solve American healthcare. Right. I don't and, know. I, yeah. Well, and, I think, and, and I, I think, I think this is, this is in contrast and also informed to like, um, they probably would rather people forget, but do you remember a couple of years ago when Amazon JPMC and I think it was even Warren Buffett yep. and his, his they buddy said the same things. So. Yeah. We're like, here's a press release and we're going to solve American healthcare. And then, and then I think, I think a year later they were kind of like, oh, fuck this shit. And they were like, Out. <laughs> it's not going to work. You know? Yeah. And, and so it does seem like maybe maybe what I'm getting at is I think that, um, you know, if, if they were refilming The Princess Bride today, instead of saying, you know, you should never start a land war in winter against Russia, right. they would say like, and every Sicilian knows you should never try to solve American health care. Yeah. Right. Well, like to your point, just, I think that we need to add IBM, right? IBM just went through this entire process, right, where they sort of mm. like had a bunch of aspirations. Maybe not around healthcare records. I think that was part of it. That was a lot of on the other uh, things. But I think IBM's made a run at it, and they sort of got out of it. And I think Oracle's about to make a run at it. You know, you said Amazon. So it definitely feels like it's one of these issues that like – and I think, you know, I when I read the Larry Ellison comments, I just sort of like, well, that's just sort of the veneer you throw on an acquisition. You're really – going to do this because it's going to have great free clash flow forever. Like, you know, like buying Siebel or some of those old systems that they acquired. It's mm. like, yeah, these ERP systems are never going anywhere. These uh, Salesforce automation systems, they never get thrown out and we'll just kind of keep them under maintenance and we'll take uh, some good free clash flow. But it's always nice, you know, just to put a little, uh, little strategy around it and like, oh, and also we'll, uh, um, you know, fix healthcare records, uh, portability. But like everybody knows that's nearly impossible. So, so now, now I think as a final point on this, how, you know, using the equation you picked up from someone that uh, valuation equals revenue times story. Do you think? Do you think this is an effective story? Do you think it's good? Like how how is it? Uh, how's it going to play out? Like, well, I think in this case, I don't. You know, I'm going to say the 28 billion. Although maybe it, it took place right before this recent downturn. So, putting that aside, I think mm. it's going to say it's fairly valued. I don't think anyone had Cerner in the high growth category, right? So they kind of have it in the perfect Oracle. Uh, wheelhouse, which is kind of like Oracle. I think Oracle, of all the big companies, I think Oracle sort of acts mostly like a private equity firm. Like it's mm. more the most transparent. Whereas, like, I mean, that's bad and good. Like a lot of people get frustrated when they're coming to get by by Oracle, but you kind of know what's going to happen, and they seem pretty straightforward by it. Versus other places that are always like, ah, oh, yeah, you're a strategic thing, and we're going to grow you. But then you get there, and it's like that eh, doesn't right, really work right, out. Right. So I think in the case of this, it's like Oracle's like, well, we have all this cash, and we want to continue to build up more and more cash in areas that are going to be highly defensible. Um, unlikely AWS or GCP or uh, Azure is going to get involved here, and it's it is like a large, you know, it's kind of like if you want to think of it this way, it's just ERP for healthcare, which is an area that they're exactly pretty, they're real familiar with. So you got to think themselves like this makes a lot of sense for us to take our money and just throw this in here and you know no one's going to think anything of it and it's just going to throw off a few billion dollars over the next 
X amount of years, and it's going to be a great acquisition. So I think smart, smart I, I, by them. Yeah, I think that's like when when I read up on it, I was like, yeah, it makes total sense. Like, good job. And and you know, you bring up a topic that maybe a year or two from now, from now, if this podcast still exists, we should discuss the concept. Like, I, I'm very curious about this idea of a public company that is a private equity company. I think maybe that's that's like a thing. I guess we used to call that a holding company or a conglomerate company. I mean, I guess Berkshire Hathaway is well. See, there's some there's something that is like like the Oracle model, where like you're uh, you're publicly traded, but you're basically using a PE handbook on on things. Which yeah, like I don't a trilogy. I think comes to mind, right? You know, kind of for those around Austin, they've just sort of they've. They are a hundred percent a private. I don't know if they're public, but they're a hundred percent private equity, right? Just well, right, but 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 that's it. the whole thing is that you are a public company, yeah. But you use you use PE uh, strategy and uh, and uh, playbooks uh, for doing things. Well, we could probably think of a big one, but we won't talk about it today. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so, maybe, so, maybe so, sometime, <laughs> sometime possibly in the future. In the future. We'll, we'll see uh, how how that goes. Well. So, so meantime, I mean, I think, I mean, hopefully this will only be a reoccurring topic for, I don't know, maybe a year or so, because we, we always need content, but we don't want to like make it bad as it seems like, as always, I mean, I think, you know, we might've even given a name to this before, but I think we should just call it the, um, uh, maybe like the, the, uh, the, the Brandon bias <laughs> named because you described it and discovered it, not because you have it. Which is like I think you've expressed this over the years well, which is like everything's awesome when you're making lots of money. Right. Now I know <laughs> I know that's yeah. I know that's the halo effect, but I feel like you've developed this idea further, right? And for example, I feel like a data point in your theory is what, what we've been seeing tragically. And again, I want to emphasize that I'm not trying to be like, you know, uh like fiddling during a fire or sort of like uh what's the German word? Schadenfreuden or whatever. Yeah, yep. uh, Schadenfreude. Yeah, because it is like, I, I think it's worth studying these things in order to avoid them and like help people out with them. But it appears that not only because of inflation or interest rates, and everyone knows that I'm completely befuddled by this, right? Like whenever it comes to like macroeconomic stuff, my feeling is just like, you know, the channel Matt Iglesias, it's like, or, or could we decide not to do that? <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't seem the way that things run. Maybe we can no, get Tyler Cowan and Co- Cohen and no. Cowan in here and tell me why that's a bad idea. Uh, but it seems like as the crypto uh, industry is losing value, the uh, the executives there are are falling prey to the uh, let me let me try another name the Brandon trap, <laughs> right? Which is to say they've been propping up, and not, I shouldn't say they, but there are some of them who have been propping up this kind of bullshit approach to life and business and it's been fine because they've been successful but now all of a sudden because there's not just an unlimited flow of money and valuation uh it's sort of like oh right uh you had to sell the drapes to your house and now it looks like there's some fucked up ship going on uh back there (laughs) and now we talked about this as far as like the um Doing the thing where you've got like your uh, like in Black Mirror the reviews above your head, right? Uh, for real time feedback. Yep. But it se- it seems like further on, there's been several like letters from people and uh, like all sorts of, of of executives who have kind of hidden behind that curtain of success, and now we're discovering that like ooh maybe this uh, the way they're operating is not cool. Uh, yeah, and, no, hundred percent. I mean, I guess the, the article we're referring to here is Coinbase, and uh, I don't know. At least at the moment, I feel like. The CEO of Coinbase is sort of taking on the 
it does seem like people sort of get associated with these moments, right? You know, like kind of the WeWork and, you know, that they made the documentary about Adam Newman and stuff like that. And I feel like maybe we're headed that way for the, the Coinbase uh, CEO. So I think we always have to like pull apart like several of these things. It's like, all right, so we knew, everybody kind of knew crypto was at a minimum a highly speculative world that even the the biggest crypto bulls always kind of said it's going to be volatile they're going to be spikes right things are going to happen so i don't i feel like that is just of anything in crypto i think that was considered fact going into this and so to your point i mean i guess i and the reason i put this in here it is a little bit of halo effect it's like so okay so the we had the ceo come out create uh coinbase I think there's always a combination of luck and timing and intelligence. And I think, you know, clearly that happened for Coinbase. They hit it all at the right time and they've made, you know, tremendous amount of money in the IPO. And now they're having this huge drawdown, which I think this is the part I, I think is very clear, which is like, which was very predictable, right? I don't think anybody knew when, but we could say to ourselves, it's possible this is going to happen, right? And to your point is now we're starting to see all of the, like, what it takes to lead a large company as a CEO is just a whole different skill set than it is to build out a crypto exchange. And the things that come out came out this week is like, and I'll just kind of list them off. It's just like, one, you got to manage perception, right? So it's like, you have this big IPO, mm. you buy a $100 million house in Los Angeles. Like, that's going to get reported, right? That's news to everyone. That's the kind of stuff we all want to see. And that's going to sort of set up an image of you that is, you know, kind of like Silicon Valley-ish, right? Or from the TV show. And it's like, one, it's like, maybe hold off on buying that house for a few years until you've really got your company established, right? That would be my first thing. Two, as we talked about the real-time feedback, it's like, you can't espouse this culture of like, hey, we, you know, we're a business. I want to hear good ideas. I want it direct. I want, you know, and that's all I want to hear. And I don't want to hear a lot of back channel talk, right? And it's like, okay, well, if you're saying that, then it turns out like uh, that in this case, the Coinbase people kind of came together and said, you know, they wrote out a letter saying like these executives should go and they outlined their reasons why. I have no idea if the reasons are valid or not. I just know that's what's going on. So then it was written anonymously. So as a leader, I think you would then in turn internally think to ourselves, like, why did these people feel like they had to write it anonymously, Right. Like, have I created a culture that maybe promotes the idea that you can't speak freely, even though I've said the opposite? Well, right, exactly. His, that, his, that's incredibly ironic. That's and then fantastic. his response, right after telling people to, you know, to, you know, to basically air your grievances uh, in private. I think he talked about praise in public, and then, um, you know, whatever, you know, you know, give bad reviews, and, and I don't, however that saying goes. And uh, but what did he do? He went to Twitter and wrote a long Twitter thread basically calling out these employees for not, you know, speaking directly and using their names and then um also saying that they should leave if they feel this way. Like so inside that Twitter thread is probably the answer to like why people did this anonymously. It's like they feel like there would be retribution, right? So again, like if your culture is this very open, almost Bridgewater-esque like Hey, like we can be super direct, but like, you know, we leave it at the door, right? We don't like, it doesn't carry over. I think, you know, again, like you would think some of this would just spawn some kind of like inward thinking. Like, have I maybe, you know, it's the old, like I've said things and people have heard it, but people are really watching what I'm doing, not what I'm saying. So if I'm responding in public and kind of taking people down, maybe my employees are getting the indication that's the, the right communication mechanism rather than what I've told them to do, right? 
Um, and so it just kind of goes on and on and on. And I just think, to, like to me, and then finally, I just think as an operator of any kind of company, it's like it really feels like Coinbase was like caught off guard that this big downturn could happen. It feels like they would have had contingency plans. Unfortunately, maybe we have to lay off twenty percent of our staff. Do we know how we're going to do that? Is shutting off everyone's email address the first way that someone should get notified, followed by a personal an email to their personal account, inviting them to a meeting? Like maybe we should think through. What does the process look like when we have to unfortunately offboard a whole bunch of people? Is this really what we want? Also, too, if we're worried about like the only way that we can protect the company is shut off access to everything for all of these employees, maybe we need to look more at our security posture. Like, what about people who are still part of the company that are potential insider threats? Have we taken the necessary security steps? So these are all like operating principles. I think are probably fairly obvious. Um, but like, you know, in this case, I think the CEO of Coinbase is just failing at every level, right? And then it just you know, he just comes across. Like, guys, I always want to look at it like, hey, I'm sure he's under a tremendous amount of stress. Just because he makes lots of money doesn't mean he doesn't have any problems. I get that. I totally get it. But <laughs> it does become harder and harder to like see the other side or like even find this person remotely likable. Like, you know, and I don't know. I've never met him. I don't know um, what he's really like. But, I, you know, all of these mistakes, I think, uh, were at least foreseeable and they're handling them poorly. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Kote? Yeah, and and there's also like uh, there's there's another um, I don't even know what to call it Bitcoin crypto what the fuck ever there, there's another company that I hadn't heard of until all this stuff called uh, Kraken, which is just <laughs> like 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 you know first of all you should probably not name your company against a monster that tries to destroy <laughs> humanity and civilization just like baseline like you know like hire some marketing people right? Some, some kind of PR people to figure that out, but whatever. Right. And I mean, over there, it seems like it's even worse. Right. Like, and, and I think there are, there's two things you're making me think, Brandon. One of them is, is yet another uh, software defined uh, business uh, model that I think we might want to pursue at some point. But the first one is like this, this kind of stuff when it, when it comes up, like, you know, I don't know. You probably get those emails about like, what are our core corporate values? And right. like, we'd like you to go through the annual training to like, there's always some fanciful name for it that like, you know, has some stuff. Uh, and, and like, I always am just like, I don't know, man, I want to do something else. But however, and, and at VMware, like they are hella into like their corporate culture and how cool it is and everything. And like, I, roll, I, I have to admit, I roll my eyes at it sometimes, but when I see stuff like this, it makes me appreciate like how much time at the highest levels, I don't know what the fuck, what does that mean, highest levels? I think all the way probably up to the board uh, that they, like, you know, they actually care about their culture. And I've seen this at other organizations and I see it reflected in like the way that people operate and what they say. And like, you don't really like appreciate that until you see kind of like the opposite of it somewhere, right? And so it is like, Whenever an event like this happens, it's a good way of reminding yourself of like, right, it's really important to not be an asshat, right? Like, and you should try to like embody that in the way that you as an individual and you as an organization operate. And so I think that like one, it's a good opportunity to try to turn a frown upside down. Like as this thing kind of plays out, um, all the DevOps and SRE or whatever it's called nowadays there's some great cultural studies to come in here, right? Because like, I feel like um, a lot of the cultural commentary we've had in the DevOps world, it doesn't quite have as good use cases of this, of like, <laughs> what does it actually mean to have a toxic culture, 
yeah. right? Like, like how does it negatively affecting? Like, obviously, you don't want burnout and people killing themselves and stuff like that. So that's terrible, right? Uh, but like, there's something like even more about what culture means, and like, we can identify good cultures, right? But it's also very important to identify what a bad culture is and how it leads to things. So there's some good case studies. Hopefully, we'll see some HBR articles. Maybe MIT Sloan. I don't know what they do over here. Amsterdam School of Business. Maybe they'll write something up. Uh, but that would be good. Now, secondarily, I think a new business model we might want to pursue, Brandon, is the why don't you call us up and like kind of send that email to us first, right? <laughs> so this is this is the first level of stuff. Is like we're not a PR agency, right? But we're also not kind of like a Machiavellian like like uh like tech libertarian like person who is just sort of like looking to optimize what you type into the keyboard based on like your valuation we're not into that we just kind of want to be like you know maybe you should just like change your twitter password for 48 hours <laughs> and give it to someone that you trust and just cool off for a little bit right like I know, I know you're you're a super smart person. You got stuff to say, but just like, just take a moment, right? Like, yeah. just give yourself some time. And like, and here are, and then the other part of that is like, here's what we've gathered. This would be like the presentation that I would give is that like, so, you know, let me convince you of that a little bit or just bring you into this story. And here are five easy to identify things, words that you will find yourself saying that means you should just take a moment. And one of them, and I think in the Kraken thing, you identified one of them, which is, if you don't like working here, you should leave. And it should be like, listen, if you find yourself thinking that, take a moment, right? <laughs> like, like there, there, there has never been a case where someone says that and it turns out well. Now, I know, I know maybe you're like 26 or maybe even 52, but trust me, if that phrase comes up, that's a big tell that something is going wrong. You don't want that, right? And then another one is sort of like... If you, as you were saying, if you have your employees writing anonymous letters, slow down, like recognize that something's happening. So I feel like we could offer a service that's sort of like, just take a moment, right? Here's like five key phrases that are going to come up. That means that like, uh, go, go get a lunch. Yeah. Take a trip. And ski, I, I, if I could, something. I'd like to, uh, in the slide deck we're preparing, I, I'd like to just, you know, coin like a little phrase and just say, you know, there's the privilege of power, right? And I think in both of these cases of uh, um, the C uh, CEO of Coinbase as well as you know um, Elon Musk, you could say like, here's what's going on, right? It's like you have won this incredible power and it's the power of privilege where you have made so much money and had so much success that you can do almost anything because no one in the company or even outside the company, there's gonna be very limited ways that they can control you. So if you decide to do something you're going to be able to do it, whereas most other people don't have that. And you can even explain to them why. It's like in the case of Tesla, it's like Elon Musk, you made the counterintuitive bet that like now was the time for cool electric vehicles. No one really believed in you. Uh, you believed in it. You're now the world's most wealthiest man, or at least was uh, uh, for a short period of time. 
But remember, like that was just one decision. It doesn't mean because that decision was right that this is always going to play out, right? Every time you feel like people don't get you, you can't always call upon that. And the same thing with Brian Armstrong here as the CEO of Coinbase. Like you believed in crypto when other people didn't. You built this great exchange when other people didn't. And just because you made that decision doesn't mean all your other decisions are going to be right around culture, right? And that's what you have to tell these people. Say like that. But this is giving you this power of privilege, right? So you can say and do whatever you want because you've made these huge bets and people aren't going to really check you as whereas, you know, a lower level employees aren't going to tweet because they would be fired if they were to say certain things that get tweeted out, right? If they told people like, if you don't like it, quit. That's not something that even middle managers or even vice presidents for the most part are going to get away with for very long in companies. So that's sort of, I think, the thing that both these, you know, these people that have achieved a success miss, right? And I think that's really what we're seeing. And it, they kind of let it play out in, in the public. And I don't think, to your point, it's like, I bet you they do have really smart HR people con um, providing consultations about here's what we should do and here's how we should handle it. And I'm sure Brian Armstrong was like, I'm sure he was just like, in this case, like every other human being. I'm sure he feels like here I've created this incredibly valuable company. And, I, and I'm sure and he thinks of in the first person. And I've helped you all make millions potentially billions of dollars and you're gonna like you know leak an anonymous memo about this to other people and you know take me down like i'm sure what happened in that case like he was very frustrated and angered by it i would be i mean we would all feel that way and he went right to twitter and he didn't have any you know used that power of privilege wrote that out and i think he probably said a bunch of stuff that's not that even if he believes it it's not going to help him achieve his goals so right. that's the biggest thing and i just as we see it over and over and i think maybe we should just you know kind of like wrap the segment with thinking about like as an employee though i do think you know there are limited as while i watch all these people writing anonymous memos and like calling on they want to like have elon musk and they want to have town hall and asking all these questions it's like i think the answer for most most people at companies is like you know all the answers already right these people are very powerful they're going to probably do what they want to do if, if if you feel better it really helps you speaking out publicly and trying to make changes you can just know that it's a real uphill battle and i think somebody in the slack asked this question this week like you know would you work at a company that basically uh, you didn't like the CEO. And it's like the answer, and I think somebody else in the side kind of just said like, well, it depends on how much they pay me. And I think that's really the reality is like you at the person at a company like this, you just got to decide like what's best for you. And I think spend your energy there. Like how much money am I making? How do I like the team that I work on? Are the people I work with day to day good? Do I think the things we're doing on in the company good? And not if you will get so tied up in the larger part of it, because you know, you're going to have a very minimal effect on changing that. Even if, even if the, the CEO stands at the table and says like, send me emails, tell me what's wrong. I want to change the things. It's like, reality is that's really, really difficult. So I think as you go forward, I think maybe like, it's like, maybe just a version of this whole segment is like, just take care of yourself, like be aware of what's going on, but really maybe in the end, just take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 th I think two things to close it out. One to emphasize it, you know, everyone who, uh, uh, to, to the executives out there who really embrace and are genuine to like uh, being nice culture wise or just being normal, as, uh, as as my wife always reminds me, I should say these things. Fantastic. I appreciate it. Keep doing it. Uh, and, and then and then two, I'm thinking in our new business model, Brandon, <laughs> like that the, I want to I want to run the experiments through it. Right. But but the the thing that we're going to do is so. So we identify when this is happening. We've got that key phrase, like once you have the thought or you utter the thought, if you don't like it, you don't have to work here. That immediately triggers this response, right? It, it, it's, it's almost like a uh, 
I don't know how like CISOs work, but I feel like there's some sort of triggering mechanism that just kicks off the <laughs> mechanisms, right? right? And so that is that's like getting a CVE is posted. It's it's like zero day. If you don't like like it, you don't have to. Maybe work Twitter should just twenty four hour time you out. Like once you type it in, it's like oh, we saw you're about to tweet this twenty four hour time out. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and 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 I feel I feel like the the path that happens then, right? Like we're not going to put a bag over your head and put you in a van, but you know. It's sort of like you're just like it's your fiduciary responsibility now to enter into the software defined talk, uh, you know, don't be an asshat uh, program. Uh, and I and I think what we're going to do at the retreat is we're going to sit people down, and in order to graduate from the retreat, you have to watch uh, all of the seasons, all the episodes, plus the movie of Hilda, and explain <laughs> why this is a good show. And like what we want to see is that you're kind of empathizing with what's going on here, the environment. Like we really want you to like get into the universe and kind of understand like what's happening here and why this is comforting. And like if you can somehow uh, sort of like transform yourself and realize that like, oh, this is the world that I should be building. Like this is kind of like this is a nice place where everyone is happy. I think then maybe will consider returning you back to your executive <laughs> status. And uh, you might be certified that you're not an asshat uh, is, is what we might do there. Now, now, Brandon, you'll have to work on how much we charge for that. I think it's going to be a lot of money. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of money, but it won't be a very long PowerPoint. So now, now, I just, now, this is not my department pricing. I think that's what you do. But I want to suggest that maybe to show our commitment in the language that someone like this will understand is that they will be forced to give us at least a single-digit amount of equity in the company that they <laughs> run. Right. Because right. then we have, as they would say, skin in the game. Skin now, in the game. That's right. We're incentivized what, what, the right way. Uh-huh. What they're, what they're going to understand after going through our program is that no one would like to have skin in the game because they would like to keep their skin, <laughs> right? Like, that is a bad metaphor on its that's own. Right. However, when we're pitching it to them, we will use that phraseology right. because At we the know this, how they're thinking. We'll, we'll yes. rid you of that metaphor. I like it. That's very good. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, so also, uh, I, I didn't get a chance to read all of this, uh, but can, can it looks like Google's introducing some new changes to calendaring, Brandon, which I know you're always on top of calendaring. So how how is uh, what's going on with Google? Yeah, I mean, there's two things I will just talk touch on briefly in the world of productivity software, which I am. I'm always looking because, like, I don't know, like all of us, I use it. I'm always trying to like, I don't know what's better. So, one, Google's just basically making calendar invites, you know cleaner and simpler to read. So it's basically easy to see when something has changed, why it's changed and, and the dates, which, you know, in itself is like, you think to yourself like, well, wow, that's just simple. Why, why would that be a big deal? But it's like, I feel like calendaring is like, it's never really good, right? Even that's, that applies to all of them, like not anything else. So, so the fact that somebody's just trying to like fix the small problems, like, Hey, can I see what time the meeting is and when it's changed? I think that was, um, Good, good to know. So I'm glad to see the people over at Google are at least thinking about it. And then um, this other one I thought was funny, uh, written by a self-proclaimed millennial about like, uh, uh, why the F uh, um, does uh, anyone enjoy using Outlook? And it was just a nice little missive about, uh, you know, really someone kind of going from Gmail to Outlook. And I guess, you know, I kind of forget this. The millennials have really grown up with what Gmail is there, you know, uh, first introduction to uh, email. So when they see Outlook, it's just like all crazy to them. Whereas like, you know, I think like it would be like me, me and you saying it's like Pine. Remember like Pine, the email reader long day? Like our first interactions were these other things. And I'm sure we, a bunch of people, when they got Outlook, they were like, I like Pine better or whatever, whatever the Unix uh, ones we were using back at the time. But I thought like, at the end, it was just sort of like a, a kind of funny thing about uh, – and she says, you know, um, quote, but my love affair with Gmail is really about comfort and comfort 
Um, and mm. basically she goes on to say, and I just think it was really interesting about like, she answers her own question. It's like, this is just another version of like every generation going through this. Um, like you just like what you know, right? You just always like what you know and you like what you have and all of us don't want to change. So it's like outlook. I don't know. Is it good? Is it bad? It's just what the corporate world has adopted and all of the people that sort of like don't want to think about productivity software. They just learned Outlook and they don't ever want to learn anything else again. And that's just going to be how it is. Right. And uh, so I thought that was funny too, just to see kind of like, I'm just using yeah. this, this author because she says she's a millennial. It's like, no, oh, the millennials, they're all going through the same thing. And it's like, my message back is like, I don't know, just learn the productivity software they make you use, get as good at it as you can. And, you know, when you're at home, you can try, try other stuff, but like, but don't, don't spend a lot of time thinking about why they use Outlook. Just get good at using Outlook is my, my whole point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, you know, it, 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 when I read through that, it made me reflect that I have gone back and forth between, like, using Gmail full-time and then using Gmail plus Outlook. And at this point, they both look kind of dirty, right? Like, I think, I think that... So I, I like the Outlook mobile app. I haven't checked out the Gmail, like, iOS app in a long time. But for, for a long time, back when it was... Uh, what was it before they acquired Javier's company? Aptio or something? Like, uh-huh. I remember I started using that app a long, long time ago. And I always liked the way that the, the what's now the, the Outlook mobile app worked. Like, it makes sense to me. But, like, yeah, they're both kind of, like, the Gmail interface on the web is really, like, weird. It's almost anachronistic in, in the way that it works. <laughs> However, like, it's very effective. Like, it's, it's, it is kind of, like, magical, uh, the way that it works. Like when I search for stuff in, in my corporate outlook, it's just like boggling how unhelpful yeah, it, it just is. doesn't work. Right. It just yeah. And, it, and, right? and it does seem like, I, I mean, I guess to be positive is the wrong word, but to be understanding, like, I guess that's a hard problem to solve. Like if Microsoft can't solve it, then whew, boy, searching your email difficult, but it, it really is like whatever they're doing over there on the mobile app to search for email is like, it often takes a lot longer than it would in Gmail to uh, to to search for things. But, but. I think, you know, you kind of hit on there like a whole thing about like it's a hard problem to solve. And I, I think in, in I'm going to call it like the traditional corporate environment because I bet you most people listening to this you know, are you know use Mac uh, or probably maybe some use Linux or some combination. But but really, most people are using Windows. Most people are using Outlook and Office. And most people consider the problem solved, even if you know, and I think that's kind of like what it's sitting on here. It's like, that's like yeah. the vast majority of office workers. That's what they know. That's what they like. And nobody wants to learn another op- a Very Again, in the broad kind of enterprise world, people don't want to learn new operating systems. They don't want to learn new productivity software. I mean, even Windows, who tries to just, when they move the... Uh, the kind of the menu bar from like the left to the center, right? It's like, I mean, it's just people just freak out. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing is just to know where you are on the spectrum. It's like, you're listening to this. You're probably interested in playing with lots of productivity software. Certainly we like to talk about it and do it, but like, Hey, this is solved problems for most people. And that's why there isn't a ton. It's uh, what someone called it like unopinionated software. It's like Excel. It's like, is Excel the best data analysis tool? No, not at all. But it's just sort of like, lets people do what they want to do. No one wants to learn anything new. Anything that you would try to create is almost nearly impossible at this point to disrupt Excel, Outlook, and, and Office. And it's like, I, so to me, it's like, just learn the systems and just move on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think the other thing, you know, the headline is like, you know, who, who enjoys using Outlook? And it's sort of like, well, no one enjoys using their work email. Like, that's not really like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not the point, you know, the, right? The, 
Yeah. Yeah. The content in there is not really, which is not to be all like old guy doing whatever, but it's like, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is worth reflecting that, like, I think it, it is, you know, I do, I, I guess pun intended, I do pine for using Gmail. I always like that the best. I think it is kind of the best interface for doing email stuff. But Outlook does, maybe I never got comfortable with the way that, like, uh, I don't know what they call it now, G Suite, Google Apps, whatever. I never really got, I never trusted the way that it does scheduling. It always seemed like it wasn't going to work which probably I should have trusted it. But if I did trust the way that, that it did scheduling, I think it would have been a replacement because I very much so, and this is just our generation, I guess, but I trust the Outlook way of doing right. stuff. Well, I think yeah, you, but I think you're speaking for an entire industry. It's like Gmail countering is always, just what you said, it never gives you that feeling that it's really right. Outlook countering is great. Say what you will, don't like it, be unhappy with it. Yeah, It works yeah. great. Nobody misses an Outlook meeting, right? I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're not there, it's because you chose not to be there. People miss Gmail invites all the time. And that's like, again, it's just sort of like it's a boring thing that just works, but everyone needs it. And, hmm. you know, once people get used to it, they're never changing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, before we get to the, uh, the third part of the show, uh, it, the, the, uh, the Gartner Magic Quadrant for, was it observability? I haven't looked at it yet. The uh, was out. And uh, I, think, I think there was much much celebration in, in our community that Honeycomb showed up in the upper right quadrant. Yeah, the leader, in the they leader just, quadrant, as they say. They, they, they just got over the edges there, and, yep. and they're just in Just barely, there. but it doesn't matter. When you write the blog post, yeah. a leader is a leader. Yeah. I, I mean, no one's going to go in there with a pixel ruler and start to evaluate like where they are relative to other stuff. So, so first of all, congratulations. It's been many years. A lot of work put into that, and uh, I, I think it, it uh, panned out. And, and I just want to say... You should celebrate this. Like it's it's totally cool to be in the magic quadrant. It doesn't invalidate any sort of like coolness or work that you're doing. It's uh, it's good stuff. So uh, hopefully over the next uh, whatever FY they're in, I don't know how they do it if they if they match their FY to their CY. So I don't know if we're on a 24, a 23, or a 18. But like I, th- I think it's it's uh, the the field marketing people over there you know, having a party. So, so uh, <laughs> they've already bought stuff. the uh, redistribution rice. The blog post has been written. The newsletters yes. are going out, but I think, I think as, I think as one of our honeycomb friends said in the community, it's very easy to get a copy of this report. Uh, so <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I do think, I mean, long time uh, friends of the show, uh, Ryan and, and former sponsor, uh, although they won't come back as a, a current sponsor, still we'll mention them. Data dog, still the big dog on the chart. I guess they don't ever like all Gardner magic punches. They never want to, have a true leader so they place datadog and dynatrace like so close together it's like well one is a little bit higher on completeness of vision and one is higher on uh execution so but i think execution is the more important vector so i always Mm -hmm. think when i'm like actually scoring it i'm like well if you if you if it's kind of a tie but you're leading in execution you win so i i'm going to declare uh in the first ever uh software defined talk uh, as we interpret a magic quadrant Datadog was the true leader. They won it. They're number one. Although you can't do that, Gardner would never let you pick rankings. I'm going to certify them number one ranking in this magic quadrant. And I'm sorry, Dynatrace, uh, unless you email us and buy ads, we won't change it. We won't change that at all. But uh, but I'm sure you did very well, too, because you're the solid number two. And and I want to just throw this out there to uh, any Gardner people listening. I mean, I know they love it when people suggest how to rejigger the magic quadrant. But I think I think I think there is a uh, let's call it the uh, uh, maybe the close magic quadrant 
like like more practical magic quadrant. I think there should be another magic quadrant that collapses together execution and vision, right? Because I think that basically what vision is saying is that if I buy this thing today, it's not going to be obsolete in two to three years, right? Like that's what, I mean, vision is kind of representative of like, they've got some great ideas, right? Now, I often have great ideas and I don't execute on them. And so therefore they are bullshit and useless, right? Like great ideas are not, uh, not great unless they result in something. But I, I would like to see a magic quadrant that is based on let's collapse together execution and vision. And then the other vertical is cost and just Ooh, price, yeah. right? Because I feel, I feel like as a buyer, you're like, so would I like someone who can execute well? Yes. Would I like someone that has good vision? Uh, yes. I don't need to hesitate for either of those. Would I like to pay a lot for that muffler? No. Right. And so like all you really want to yeah, know that, like, I, like I just, value. I just want the, you're basically saying value. Like what's the value I'm going to get out of Right, this? right, right. And, and then, you know, whatever, I know all the objections and, and ways you could do it, but like really maybe what they should do is you can always, you can use a bubble chart to have three uh, axes on a thing so they could stick with the magic quadrant and the bubble they should have is the uh, the larger the bubble, the more expensive it is. Yeah, well, that's and, the old and, uh, you know. Forrester has that, and the wave they've got the two dimensions and then the size of the bubble. So they you can kind of steal from that a little bit. I like it on value, but make that that third thing value. I like it. Oh. Yeah, that that would be great. Just uh, and then hey, you know, since we did it, I think we should just do it. I'm I don't have the ruler out, but I'll just I'm going to do the top five. Then uh, you know, this is how I. Uh, actually interpret this magic quadrant. So I already mentioned it. Number one, Datadog. Number two, Dynatrace. Relic, new Relic, uh, clearly number three. They're kind of in a little area by themselves. So there's no doubt about that. Then Honeycomb, which is behind in completeness of vision, but higher in execution. So again, I rate execution higher. So they're four. Rounding out the top five would then be IBM, which is really Astana. So like to me, I think that's how everyone reads these charts. But I actually be interested if anyone uh, they should either email us or put something in the Slack. Tell us, tell me if you think completeness of vision should be uh, rated higher because that's just what I do. I just kind of do my own little factor. I'm like, okay, uh, you know, execution is a one, and then maybe uh, completeness of vision is like a point seven five, right? You don't get quite as much credit for that. So well, so well that's, that, it. that's that w- the top five. That it, it'd be a fun for for any of our listeners. A fun weekend project would be like do some pixel counting where you can send it a screenshot of any magic quadrant and it'll do a ranking yeah. based on the uh, yeah. The, and I think you should of, you should just put in the factors like be like I rate execution this and I rate completeness of vision this and then that would just give you a linear ranking right one through right right. I, I mean I mean basically you want to take that screenshot and convert the position of the center of the dot into an x y coordinate. Yeah. And then stick that in. This is finally and, and, some type of artificial intelligence machine learning project I can get behind. Someone needs I, to I, figure that out. That would be great. I mean, it, it, will, it will come as no surprise that when I did corporate strategy, I dreamed of that application <laughs> almost daily, right? That you could, you could take a chart that someone had not put numbers on and basically calculate what the numbers were uh, based off of that chart. It would, that would have been so handy. Uh, maybe, maybe Apple will be that, be, have that in there. Well, do we have any bureaucracy this week, Brandon? We do. We've got a bunch of things uh, happening this week. So um, first, I want to thank, uh, I think, uh, Jesus wrote what I think is the perfect um, STT comment. You know, it was a correction uh, about your, your, uh, I don't know, some of your liberal arts discussion last week about, I guess you said, uh, 
who is it? Who killed Julius Caesar? It was uh, Mark mm, Anthony, yes. but it's actually Brutus. This is yes. comment. I won't read the whole thing because it's long, but it was just, it was actually just perfect. It was a great correction followed by very some comments. It was very, thorough. it's, it's the only, it's the only kind of comment that will find its way into the software defined talk community or comes from the software defined talk community. So you should join the Slack and check that out. Uh, we mentioned Datadog before. I guess, well, I already, I just look at this. I made them number one in my own magic quadrant. And Ryan says, they're hiring. There's so many jobs he posts, I can't post them all. So go into the Slack, go into the jobs channel. I don't know. Pretty much if you do anything related to tech, Datadog has a job for you. And find Ryan, and he'll uh, tell you about it. And then finally, I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to uh, everyone that uh, has been participating into the uh, Software Defined Talk thread. Uh, if you're a new listener, this is what happened. Somebody started a thread. Actually, it was Matt Ray two years ago. Uh, and then the thread just kept going. So now the thread, uh, as of this week, has gone over 7,000 messages in, in the Slack. So uh, it's been there for two years. Of course, because we're on the free Slack, you can only go back and read so many. So some of the thread messages are secretly ar- archived away. So I don't even know how to describe it. The thread is sort of like... Uh, a loose general channel that covers all topics at this point. So to all of the people that have commented in the threads, congratulations on 7,000. And more importantly, congratulations to Slack for supporting this. This is obviously a ridiculous use case. Shouldn't you, They should probably just turn it off and not let us keep doing it, but it keeps working. <laughs> so great job, Slack. Great job for supporting over 7,000 messages in one thread. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a community in a thread. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what's going on there. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, uh, Brandon will do the editing to fix it, but you can. Uh, some people can hear there's a lot of commotion in the background, so I got to get to my kids. So I'm going to cut off the conference section to be shorter. I'm only going to highlight three things. One, next week, uh, Matt Ray is going to be in town for the FinOps X conference, uh, at, at, at June 20th and 21st in Austin. Uh, I said in town. I didn't mean Amsterdam. I meant Austin. Uh, so, you know, you could go check that out. Now, also... Well, this is the week after next. I'm sorry, right? Like, uh, no, it is next week. Also next week, I'm doing a great job here. Finally, we're having one of the conferences I spend a lot of time and I care a lot about, the second uh, annual one of it, DevOps Loop, which if you go to devopsloop.io, you can register and attend for free. I spend a lot of time talking with many of the speakers um, about what they want to talk about. And like, you know, we had some brainstorming sessions and I'm really looking forward to a lot of the talks that they have. It's totally free. You can register for it. Uh, it's coming up on Wednesday. So just go to devopsloop.com and, uh, you know, you should attend it. And then also the uh, call for papers for Spring One Platform, uh, I think, closes on June 28th. I was just thinking I should probably submit a paper to that, <laughs> even though I often select a lot of talks. So I might be able to just go into a spreadsheet and insert my talk in there, but I would never do that. I need to officially submit a talk and uh, go through there. But that's going to be December 6th and 8th. 6th and 8th in uh, San Francisco at the Moscone West. But you should really uh, check out that conference. It'll probably be uh, quite fun uh, this year. But with that, Brandon, what do you recommend this week? Uh, one thing, just a quick plug for stickers. If anyone wants uh, a new laptop sticker, in fact, I put some on uh, some water bottles I just got. This is what you need to do. Just send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. Be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And my recommendation this week, I don't know if it's controversial, but I think you probably already know about it if uh, you care about it. It's like, I went and saw Top Gun Maverick. I love the first Top Gun. I love Top Gun Maverick. And I'll, I'll say of all the movies that sort of like were made, if you will, when I was much younger, that are being remade, this was probably the best one, right? Uh, like the Matrix sequel, eh, it was just, it was all right. Uh, some of the other ones I didn't like as much. And I, I thought to myself, like, you know, why do I like this movie so much? And I, I just came to the conclusion that like nostalgia 
is basically like time travel. Like, you know, if you saw like music, uh, movies that you saw mm. at a certain age in your life, a certain time of your life, and then when they're well done, I mean, it just takes you right back. Like, you just feel like you're, uh, in my case, much younger uh, version of myself with, uh, if you will, all my education and things uh, ahead of me. And I was also fun because I got to watch it with my son, who really didn't really care for the first Top Gun and didn't watch it that much, but he really liked this one. So it was kind of fun. It was like, hey, I loved this when I was about his age, and now he loves this. So... You know, I know Tom Cruise is crazy. I know there's like lots of problems with the movie, but I loved it. So I'm not, I'm, if you, you are the type of person you've already seen it. If this movie is important to you, you've already seen it. But if for some reason you're on the fence, go check it out. Yeah. I have to imagine if, 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 if you were a uh, prepubescent kid and you watched the first Top Gun, you'd be like, why are they spending so much time on this volleyball scene? <laughs> what is going on here? I, I don't understand. I don't understand. It's kind of a waste. Yeah. Well, my recommendation is a pre-recommendation, but I'm so excited about it. So I, I discovered, I don't know, oh, when I was in a, a bookstore in uh, the uh, King's Cross Station or St. Pancreas, or it's not Pancreas, I, I, I forget how to say it, in London. I saw in a bookstore, there's this game called Dungeons and Dragons, The Adventure Begins. And it's this board game. Uh, and it looks, it's a very simplified version of D&D to start playing with uh, kids to kind of introduce them to the ideas. And we just got it. I haven't played it yet, but my daughter Alejandra is very, she's so excited about playing it that she's going to be disappointed. We don't have time for it tonight, but I've read through the rules. I even watched uh, about a fourth of a video, of some people playing through it. And I think it almost is going to be the perfect. It's, it's not quite a dragonwood level of simplicity, simplicity. If you know that card game, it's just a little bit more complicated, and I think it's going to work out well. So I'm looking forward to it. And if you haven't heard of it, you should check it out because I think I think it might be the key uh, for the demographic of of the uh, the young kids there. So I'll report back once we played it a few times and see if my uh, my optimism pays pays off. So speaking of optimism pays paying off, you've been very optimistic to listen this far and come to the end of yet another episode of the Software Defined Talk dot com podcast. Now this is episode. 363. So if you wanted to see show notes of things that we mentioned, the recommendations, all the conferences I recommended and the ones that I did not, you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 363 and find those links. You can also uh, look at the headers there, find out how to join our Slack community, which is great. There's all sorts of stuff happening throughout the week. Uh, I almost feel like I can follow the tech industry now because all of our uh, community sort of like uh, puts interesting things in there. But yeah, just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com or, you know, listen to the next episode where you've already subscribed to this one. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. You got to leave it in there for, uh, for flavor. That's, that, that's what these people uh, playtesting this uh, board game kept saying is like, oh, that's some flavor. So that, that, that must be some term of art. I, I, I should have mentioned this, but I, I think there's a generational cutoff where you trust a GUI more than you trust a web page. Yeah, it's like a little client. It's like a client server bias. Everyone watching. It looks like we're almost at 100 followers on Twitch. I think we're at 99. So I appreciate everybody that's uh, watched the Twitch stream or followed us. It's been fantastic. It's fun to do it this way. It's always good to get some real-time feedback from everyone. So, uh, Kote, is. any final words before we shut it down for the week? Nope. All right. Well, thanks for everyone watching. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back at some arbitrary Thursday time next week. So we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.